Good morning to you. Beautiful day out there. Sun is shining brightly. The Lord has blessed us again with fellowship of Christian people and being able to interact with one another and share the message of the gospel with one another. I was sitting here thinking about a day when I was in Bible school, probably six or seven years old, maybe eight, and the teacher got up and she shook her long, bony finger at a row of boys that probably were not behaving. I can't honestly even say remember what, what it was that we might have been doing if we were doing something wrong. But she said, you boys should think seriously about the ministering of the gospel, the preaching of the word. Boys, I would want to give you that same message. And I'll tell you why in just a little bit. God is probably going to call one or two or three of you young boys. I don't know what age to put to that to the call of the ministry, and someday you'll be called to declare truth to God's people if Jesus tarries. That's not anything to fear, but it's rather uh, an admonition to encourage you to build up yourself in the most holy faith as a young person. I didn't always live for the Lord, but I remember after this dear sister did that, to this row of boys. I remember, I, I don't know why I can't explain it to this day, except that it felt like that God had spoken to my heart. And I remember going home and going up in my bedroom and kneeling on my knees quickly because my brother was coming anytime soon and shut the door and, and I said, God, if you want me to preach, I, I'll try to do that. I took it just as seriously as she said it. And um, I have to tell you that the traveling and preaching of the word, the, the ministering at home in our home congregation, I have enjoyed. There have been times that you feel like giving up. You can't. Those are the worst times to make that decision, of course. But... Um, there's times that it's been discouraging. There's been some things we've gone through in the last few years that have not been easy, but God's grace has been available and it's been good. So I greet you in the name of Christ. Before we go any further, I don't want you to open your Bibles. Let's see if we can do it by memory, okay? Let's all stand and let's quote Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If you're new here this morning, this is a surprise to you. You can look at your Bible. All right, Colossians 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. God bless you. You may be seated. This morning, I would tell you, and, and as introductory, uh, remember that last night's message had to do with values that build um, uh, unity in the congregation. Now I want to preach about the congregation, all right? In history, the church has always been opposed by Satan. Why? Because Satan is the one who 
who is the destroyer. He's, he's come to steal and to kill and to destroy. The kingdom of God today is the church in this era that we live. I'm not trying to make any statement about anything except just bare facts that the church is today present in the world. Early in the life of the church, the Jewish people caused a struggle for the church, those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's eventually got to the point where the church, not just because of the Jews, but others, had to go underground. There's where the era of the catacombs comes. Finally, in 323 A.D., Constantine, uh, you understand the history maybe better than I do even, but he, he marched his troops through the river, declared them baptized, and he said, Christianity is now acceptable in society. We will not persecute you. And that kind of ended some of the underground era at that point. As a result of some of that, things got into a turmoil and there were some difficulties. And eventually, and I don't have the exact dates in front of me, but culture went through the dark ages. If you were looking at a period of history, you would say it was dark ages. And someone has said that the dark ages were characterized by three things, fear, ignorance, and superstition. And I think that's fairly accurate. Fear, the absence of faith. Something happened to the genuine faith and it didn't seem to be there. Ignorance in that there was no reading. They weren't learning how to read. And so the, the written word of God was a problem. They could not understand or comprehend through their own reading. Superstition is they... What they did is they started mixing the spiritual with the secular and they immediately fell into superstitious thought about certain things. They were mixing spiritism with reality or science as it could have been called at that time. And what happened was they came out with total superstition of, of thought regarding how to think about God. Eventually, we entered into the Reformation. You know that period probably better than many in the world. And eventually, the New World was discovered in America, and there was an industrial revolution that occurred, and things were booming. Science was king. Learning the principles of science and modernism resulted in terms of thought patterns. Today, we're in what many refer to as postmodernistic thought, where you can create your own reality, you can do what you want to, you can call it about anything, and you reinvent everything, including church. I would declare to you this morning that the church is a Christ-centered type ministry to one another, to all of us. Let's look into the scripture and let's find what it is. Some time ago, someone um, asked me a question about it, and we discussed how independence in the heart creates the shift toward avoiding accountability to God. Because God says, I'm accountable 
to him as well as my brother. It's impossible for me to say I love God and hate my brother. It can't function that way. Independence in the heart is an abdication, I think, of personal accountability to the brotherhood. I, I, I think that that's an important concept. However, the opposite is interdependence. And that interdependence can work when each brother or sister is submitting himself to God. And saying, God, I want to do what you want me to do. And each one is doing their own given roles and responsibilities. And they're submitting themselves to the fear of God. Last night we had the scripture, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We were focusing on the unity concept. Now I'm talking about the brotherhood. Are we functioning as a body or as a group of individuals? I'm asking the question, are you perceived here in this group as a unit or as pieces? Uh, individual pieces or are you seen as a unit that works together? I'm asking the question for to stimulate your thinking. Um, how important is the body of Christ to you? Uh, I would illustrate it this way, a ball of string and a Crochet doily are not the same thing. Now, if I understand right, uh, uh, you've got a doily where there's interconnected strings that loop around each other, and, and it goes on and on and on, and it makes a beautiful thing that's useful. A ball of string is a ball of string. It's your materials that you use to build the doily. Um, I wouldn't be good at crocheting. I'm all thumbs as it is. So some of you that are gifted that way, you can make something beautiful about something that is just, well, it's just so common, just a ball of string. Or suppose this, suppose you decide you're going to order some rock. And it's large rock, big ones. You call and you say, Brother Jonathan, bring us a load of rock. He says, sure, how many ton you want? How many loads you want? You say, well, let's bring three loads. All right, where would you like to have it dumped? Well, I almost said out east of the church. I don't know which way is east around here except the sun come up there. East must be over this way someplace. Down that way? All right. It moved on me. <laughs> All right, so you go back to the back property. Jonathan backs his truck in and he raises it up. And out fall the rocks, you know, boom, 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 boom. However they land, that's how it is. It's a pile of rocks. But if you decided you're going to take that pile of rocks and give it some order, you're going to have to take the disorder and produce order out of disorder. The pile, there's no continuity. In a wall, if you're going to build a wall with those rocks, you're going to have some continuity. The one has to lean on the other in order for the wall to maintain its strength. For a pile of rocks, there's no purpose in a pile of rocks except to supply for the wall building. There's a function and a purpose in a wall. You see, a pile is just a group of stones, whereas a wall is an interdependent unit of stones and that's the concept I want us to think about this morning 
interdependence within the brotherhood is for us today. We benefit from that interdependence when we can rely upon another. I remember preaching at Mount Hermon. It was a beautiful illustration. I loved to preach that sermon in that church where you could see the rocks. I, that was beautiful. I liked that. I would ask you this morning, is there anything up here under the surface that's actually above us? Or, you know, what's holding this building together? Uh, the structure. Somebody had to think that through before it could work. You know, behind that corner, there's got to be something to attach to, and it's got to be something that's supporting. There's an interdependence in this building. I don't know if there's trusses or rafters up here. I don't know which they are. I wouldn't know. Some of you know. But there has to be an interconnection and an interdependence from one, one stress point to another and one support point to another. It's important. God is the author of the principle of accountability. One rafter cannot say, I refuse to do my, my job. I don't like where I'm located. I don't like what I'm asked to do. And I want out of here. You can't just do that. Now electricians try once in a while when they're wiring. They cut something and we have to go back and fix that. You can't just get rid of a support point. God is the author of the principle of accountability. He gave Adam the order regarding the tree of knowledge, and then he later came back after Adam had eaten, and he said, What is this that thou hast done? God is the author of that principle, and in the same way, as we believers in Christ come together, we build, we build, we must build the congregation of the saints. It's necessary that we do it. The Christ-centered ministry of the church is interdependent. Interdependent. Inter, the prefix inter means mutual or reciprocally between and among. Whereas in dependent, the prefix in means just not. Not dependent. And so we could say, where are we at? Do we have a group that is not dependent upon one another? Do we have a group that is relying mutually for support from one another? It's necessary that we see it as a ministry of interdependence. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. The last several verses, Ephesians chapter 2. We've spent a lot of time in Ephesians this week, haven't we? Verse two, uh, 19, chapter 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners. See, these people were coming... And they were becoming part of God's called. And this was a new different concept than the Jewish people being called. And uh, it says, but fellow citizens with the saints, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Then it says in verse 20, you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, who's in the lead? Who's the head? Well, I think what he's teaching is 
that Jesus Christ is that chief and that head cornerstone. Now, I don't know much about laying block or stone, but if I understand right, you've got to get the elevation right before you start. And so you need one reference point back in the corner someplace, one of the corners of the buildings. You, you start and you say, this is our chief corner. This is the main one. And everything references off of that one point for altitude, for height. You have to pay attention to that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to turn there for just a little bit. Jesus was asked, um, uh, Jesus was asking his disciples some questions. What did I say? Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Jesus, Jesus said to the, his disciples, he said, whom do men say that I am? Well, they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, there's the spokesman again, thou art the Christ. The specific article, the, noticed, is not italicized in the King James. That means it is part of the Greek text. And when the Greek text included the article the, it meant that there was a specific one he was talking about. So you could say, thou art the Christ. There's no other Christ. Thou art the Son of God. There's no other Son of God. Thou art the, the Son of the living God. There's no other living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And Peter, the Greek word is Petra, Petros. Unto this, uh, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, now the Catholic people say that Jesus built the church upon Peter. I don't think that's at all what this scripture is saying. I believe he is referencing the confession of Peter of who Jesus is. And I think that's a significant difference. When he says, I will build my church. It is mine. I own it. And I will give to you a responsibility. And I think that's, that's rather how it's intended in that passage of Scripture. Now, men comprise the church, but they don't own it. You have someone who's been designated here as leader. But this is, I understand when we say that this is, so-and-so's church. I get that. But you need to understand that this is the church of Jesus Christ. And we cannot compromise on that concept. It's so important. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And there I want you to see verses 9 and 10. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. In other words, you're the fruits of a husbandry effort, farming, uh, giving, giving life and helping life along. You're God's building according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay 
then that is laid which is Jesus Christ, not Peter. Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. All right, let's go further. In, in, back to Ephesians 2. The church is the fellowship of the saints. The, the place where we all come together. Now I know there's more than one in terms of local groups. I get that. But at the same time, there is a larger body that we would say we all comprise the church of Jesus Christ. And as I think it was J.C. Wenger that said this, and I think this is right. And I quote, the church is the fellowship of the saints, the brotherhood of those who have been redeemed by Christ from a life of sin. Now, if you're still living a life of sin and you claim to be part of the church, you need to understand that you're under a delusion. That is not the case. You cannot, you cannot be part of Jesus Christ and continue to live in sin. Let's go a little further in answer to the question, who is the church? And let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And there it says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings as newborn babes, Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. It is right for a newborn baby to want the milk from their mother. It is right for Christians to have a desire and a passion to drink of the milk of God's word. It is right to do that. That ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now this morning, that's what I was referencing. Uh, we had Sunday school, and we were all tasting that the Lord was gracious this whole last week. That's what we were attempting to do. We were participating in tasting and digesting and processing and chewing and working on the Word of God and how it becomes our food. Verse 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones or as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. This church business is serious business. Sometimes we get into the habit of, well, we just go to church. Well, I know what we mean. We, meet that we're, we mean that we're going to meet with the fellowship of the saints. That's what we mean. But we say we're going to church. Well, I get that. I understand what that means. But understand when you say that, that you're talking about offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ in our worship. You see what this says up here on the front? I like it. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. You're going to have to live that way. You don't spend all your day in here in the church. I mean, all your days is what I meant to say. No, you go home and you work. You interact with other people. And in terms of how you behave yourself gives the impression to people regarding what you believe about Jesus. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded or won't be disappointed. No, not at all. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. 
You see, what happened is the Jewish people, they took Jesus as the head of the corner. I'll use this analogy. And they looked at this stone and they said, well, this stone doesn't fit anywhere. We don't know what to do with it. And so they said, let's just lay it aside. It doesn't fit any place. The reason it didn't fit is because it was supposed to be the chief cornerstone and they missed it. That's a problem. So there they were trying to build their wall, stumbling over the chief cornerstone, and it was out of place in their minds. Thus, they did not build the right system. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient whereunto all, so they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy. Thank God for mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, which they will see, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, that they might come to Christ. Folks, I can't emphasize enough what it means to come to Christ. The church is a Christ-centered ministry of interdependent saints that have laid aside all of their malice, all of their guile, all of their hypocrisies. That's what it says. All of their envyings and all of their evil speakings, and they put that aside and they say, we must come together for fellowship and helping one another to grow. That is so important. Robert Schuller many years ago said, the cross will sanctify the ego trip. In other words, you can still have your ego trip, but it'll just be sanctified. And I say, no, that's not right. That's not what the scripture teaches. I say that the cross... The cross leads a man, and he, he sees himself coming to the end of himself. And Jesus Christ came to rescue you from yourself, not to sanctify your ego trip and have it go on. Harold Bender wrote, Harold S. Bender wrote the Anabaptist vision, and in that thing he said three things. Christianity is discipleship. You have to walk with Jesus. Number two, the church is a brotherhood. You have to work with your brethren. Number three, lo the love ethic and non-resistance is essential to the survival of the vision. And it is still true today. The early Anabaptist understanding of scripture as it related to love and non-resistance shaped their understanding of the brotherhood. The doctrine of love was the key. Folks, we cannot mess with that concept and think that somehow we can compromise that concept of non-resistance and not have it bite us eventually. We have to be careful about that. Love is the one major key that is the bonding element of the church. Go with me to John chapter 13.
John chapter 13, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, and after he was done, no, yes, that's where it's at. John 13, 34 and 35, he says, listen, here's, here's a new commandment. Jesus said it in 34. I, this new commandment I've given to you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Boy, digest that. Process that. How much and in what way did Jesus love you? That ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Some people back in, when I was younger, a teenager, they wanted that to be made out to be, well, we all just love one another. It's a happy, lucky kind of fun love. We all come together and we just love each other. We ignore what the scripture teaches. No, that's not what it says. He says, you love one another as I have loved you. What did Jesus do? Process that. Think about that. This whole concept of love and non-resistance is the one question that the Protestant evangelical denominations cannot answer biblically. How can a brother from one nation across the, 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 the ocean, how can he come and shoot his brother and kill him with a gun? How can you do that? and still call that to be the brotherhood of saints. No, that can't happen. No, it can't happen. It ought not happen. The church is the fellowship of the saints. How can we then excuse war among the saints? We can't. A man-centered ministry looks out for the needs of myself, but a Christ-centered ministry looks out for the needs of my brother. Uh, again, it says in Ephesians 2 that all the building is fitly framed together. And that's language that means that every timber fits together and it's held together. And I think the doctrine of love holds it together. I think that is so important. So important. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In there, verses 1 through 7, it says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And here he says what kind of a mindset we ought to have with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is... One body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. It is so important, folks, that we understand that God gives us the gifts that we need for the brotherhood to serve one another not to threaten one another as a billy club. Because I have this gift. No, no. No, no. There should be a willingness to receive counsel. There should be a willingness to give counsel. But it must always be done in meekness. The concern for us folks is not so much to discover our gift as it is to tap into the grace of God that gives us 
the gift. Yes, what we rather need to discover is the grace, the great grace that God gives to be able to implement that which he gives. Go with me to another passage of scripture. A little further down in verse 12, it says, well, verse 11, it talks about him giving gifts. He gave some apostles, some prophets, not necessarily gifts, might not be the right term here, evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why did he give all those? And he gives the three reasons for the perfecting of the saints. That's a complete furnishing. I believe this brotherhood here, God has supplied for to give the strength, the wisdom, the understanding, the perfecting of the saints means there's a maturing process that occurs. The work of the ministry where service is attended upon like a servant would be to the people that he serves. The third reason, he says, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And the edifying of the body of Christ, that word actually is part of the concept of architecture. There's a structure. There's, there's, there's a building. There's, there's a part that goes here and a part that goes there. And if you go further, it says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. And there's the concept of maturity again. Mature. Not acting like children. That ye ye henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait and see to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted. And that compacted is like you drive it together, not apart. You drive the bond together, the living stones that we talked about earlier, compacted by that which every joint supplies. Let's go back to my story about the wall, the imaginary wall that you're going to build here. The one brings his tools and he wants to chip the stones so that they work just right and fit. The other one brings his bobcat and he says, I can carry the stones. I'm not very good at laying stones, but I can supply the bobcat. We'll move, we'll move these big stones over here like this. The other one, he says, well, I can bring my, my, my mixer so that we can put the mortar in here. And somebody else says, well, all I can do is shovel, but I've got a sand shovel and there's a pile of sand and I'll throw how many you want in here, I'll do it. And how much water should I put in here? And everybody's working together. What are they doing? They're building a wall. They're concerned how they're going to build that thing. Suppose you get halfway down and you've been working on this wall for six months. You want to surround the whole property with a stone wall. You got plenty of rocks in Virginia to do that. Sure. About halfway through. Someday you come back and you drive up and it's a work day again on a Saturday and you pull up. And there you see something behind the wall digging underneath the wall chipping on the mortar, trying to pull that one stone out, what would you think? You'd say, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? He said, I, I, I don't like this stone that's in the wall. I want to get rid of that stone. I never did like it in the first place. 
I'm tearing it down. You say, wait a minute. We built that wall. That, those other stones, you start pulling that one out and what's going to happen is the rest of this wall is going to start collapsing at that, spot, at that spot. It's not going to be what it ought to be. You can't do that. So he stops. The church is not a showcase for you to demonstrate your gifts to everybody. The church is a place where you can come and serve one another. And you can help one another as a body. Not just in this building. No. You're working together as a brotherhood. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's so, so clear how this all works together as a body. You see, if one starts fighting against the other, what happens is there's going to be destruction and there won't be building. Now, I want you to notice... I. I, again, struggle. Folks, I, this is a confession. I just struggling this week with your clock. I don't know if they run faster in Virginia or not, but I, I have to confess. I, I apologize, but I'm doing the best I can, okay? I go faster if I can. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's look at verse 8. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. You remember the guy that said, all I can do is use the sand shovel and throw sand in? Yeah, all right. To one gives this gift, another one gives this gift. To another working miracles, to another working uh, prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. They're all building the wall. For as the body, oh, I forgot to tell you this. In this chapter, the key word is body. It's used more times than, than member. The word body is used more often in this scripture than the word member. And sometimes what we want to do is elevate member above body. And when you do that, you've got a problem. That's what happened when you pulled in and you saw somebody out there just hiding behind that tree, kind of sneaking over every once in a while and digging a stone out of the wall. All right, let's go further. Verse 11, but all these worketh that one and self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that body being many are one body, so also in Christ, is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, or been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I am not of the body, I'm out of here. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? Folks, now listen. Eyes are good. I'm thankful for my eyes. But if my whole body was an eye, I couldn't be up here preaching. I'd be sitting one big old eyeball right down there on that bench. Somebody else would be preaching. That's all right. But now how ugly would that be? Um, taught school, had a blind child, and the false eye one time came out. I know how to put them in. I had to learn. It's not pretty. It's not fun. How about this? Folks, 
If there's a diseased member of your body, maybe some of you know some, or maybe you have the problem. I, if you can't control your body, it, it moves, and you can't control it. What do you have? You have a sick body. There's a disease. Now suppose my hand says, I'd like to be noticed. Nobody's noticed me lately, and I want to be noticed. And so, in order for me to be noticed, I'm going to continue to make motion. I'm going to continue to have activity, whether you like it or not, body, because I want to elevate member above body. I want my member to be noticed. And so, here's my hand, and my hand's up here going like this all the time. You know what? After a while, you'd say to me, will you please put that hand down? I'm sick of seeing that hand. Just put it down. That's right. You would. That's the right way to look at it. How about this? Pretty soon your stomachs are going to start enjoying food. But before that happens, your nose is going to smell the food and say, Mmm, that smells good. Now, it, it takes all parts of the body for the work. You've never seen your stomach. Oh, we've seen how the, you know, you've got to open up your belt a little bit or tighten it up more or whatever. But that's not your stomach. Your stomach is where the food goes down after it's swallowed, after it's chewed and swallowed, and it goes down into your stomach. Your stomach creates a certain work for the body that it contributes to the body. And that one member, when it starts to get noticed, you have a stomach ache. You're sick. You want the whole group of members of the body working toward one goal. And that is to honor the Lord Jesus. It's important, folks, that we get this concept. Go a little further. Verse 19. If they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee. The nose can't say to the stomach, I don't need you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble or necessary. Do you have a gallbladder? Some of you might be missing yours because it got given you trouble and you had to get it out. There's a spiritual lesson there too. You've never seen your gallbladder if you're a healthy person. You've never seen your gallbladder, but if it doesn't start working or if it doesn't work right, you're in trouble. Your body is in trouble. Those members of the body which we think to be less honorable upon those we bestow more abundant honor and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness for our comely parts have no need. But God hath tempered the body together having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked that there should be no schism in the body. We don't want no fighting in the body. Listen, that would be spastic motion. Yes, it would. If there's, if there's a body that cannot control itself because there's a certain part that continues to throw its limbs around, that is improper kind of, well, it's, it's, it has to do with a malfunction in the body. Be careful about this. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? The, the implied answer is no. Not everybody does the same thing. But... All must live a certain way. And we go directly into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I don't have time to go there. But that's where it goes. When members want more honor than the body, there's a problem in the body. A hurt finger is cared for by the whole body. That's right. There has to be care for it. 
Go with me to Exodus chapter 17. I love this story. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then came Amalek, Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out, men, and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and sought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. It came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat there on an errand, and her stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, and the Lord said unto Moses, Write this down. Uh, no, that's not what he said. I said that. Let's read it. Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I have utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, for he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Folks, the concept and the type of Amalek being the flesh continues to haunt us yet today. We struggle with it. Ourself is our worst enemies. I told you that a long time ago. An enemy attacks the group. Leadership recognizes that attack is dangerous. We have to come up with a plan. Leadership came up with a plan in this account. In fact, some of the leadership, the, the specific leader, he delegated that certain decisions were made for the group. He said, we've got to decide what to do. Delegated authority obeyed. They didn't waste precious time arguing about methodology. Joshua, he said, Moses, I mean, he did not say, Moses, I think we could do it better. Let's do it this way. No. He said they all fit together and they all did their plan. I think it's important to understand that success or failure often rests with leaders. They could have become critical of Moses. Come on, Moses, get those hands up. Well, poor Moses couldn't do it. One time Terry was a bully in science class and the teacher said, Terry, come up. Come stand up in front of the class. You don't have to do any work in science today. He said, oh, good. He was really quite a character. He said, all you have to do is just stand here and put your arms out like this. So Terry did. He, you know, after about five minutes, his arms were down here. After about ten minutes, they were down like this when the teacher couldn't see anymore. And the teacher turned around and he said, get your hands up. Terry did it again. Boys, you try this when you go home. Not now. You're not allowed to try it now. But do it when you go home. Check. See, you can't hold your hands up very often, very long. I mean, you can't do it. Moses needed help. He got help. Those around him, they jumped to action when they saw that there was an emergency. We need to do something. We need to help. Leaders at times need to rely on helpers. Joshua, Joshua, he relied on the group. He relied on them. Moses relied on them. They all worked together. Too often, folks, there's confusion, bewilderment, and there's no plan. 
but there's discouragement that occurs. But folks, in this story, in unity and cooperation, they all saw the battle through to the end. And so I would ask you, who won the battle that day? How many battles were won? Was it Moses who won the battle? Was it her? Was it Aaron? I'd suggest to you that they all won it together as they cooperated in their God-given role. I think it's so important that we see that concept. I know leaders at times make mistakes. I know that. And when they do, they need to acknowledge those. I've had to. I'm sure your leaders find the same thing. Because there are lost sheep out there that we need to be able to work and try to get them to come back to the fold. Go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. There are people that have spurned the grace of God. They've turned their back on the fold, the brotherhood. In Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 3, he spake this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over the one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. In the brotherhood, the sheep and the shepherd, they walk on the same soil. They walk on the same soil. They're out there. They're taking care of the sheep. And there's a lost sheep, it says, among this group. I don't know your group, and I don't know all the details. I don't need to. But I know that there's times when people abandon what they really ought to be interested in. These are, are things that have to do with, well, they've rejected the very doctrine that's working over time to help them. When it says in verse 4 that the shepherd, he, he, he goes after the lost sheep. I'd like to think that there's 99 people that care about that lost sheep. They're going to reach out to him. It's a Christ-centered ministry, extending the love of God, then open hand, trying to help that sheep back. All are affected when the shepherd leaves to go search. And I notice it says that he's seeking that which is lost, and that which is lost implies outside the fold at night. He's lost. And he searches until he finds it. That represents the dedication of our wonderful shepherd, Jesus. The church cares about those people. The fact that the lost sheep is being sought is evidence that the interdependence in the fold, they're all saying, yes, please, shepherd, go. I would suggest to you it's not just the preacher that goes and helps to find the, the lost lamb. It's all of you that care. The independent lost sheep is even benefiting from the very, very principles that he ignored. That's why he's lost. He was going to go out on his own and have a good time. He was going to start tearing down the wall. He was going to destroy. 
although he's the independent one, he's at this very time, unbeknownst to him, benefiting from the very principle that he's rejected. The shepherd lays it on his shoulders. Independent, self-centered, self-loving sheep get hurt. They'll break their leg. They'll be hurt on the inside. They need help. They can't walk sometimes. They need you to help bring them back. Are you going to be that shepherd? They need to be carried back. You could stand there and preach to that lost sheep and say, you goofy sheep, what in the world are you doing in that briar patch? Didn't I tell you? That won't do much to help him back. There may be a time for that, but let's help get him back. Let's reach out to him and show him. The next thing I notice is that shepherd is rejoicing in spite of the heavy load on his shoulders. He cares about his sheep. They all rejoice. In Boys Town, there's a statue. I've seen it. It's one boy with another boy on his shoulders, and it says at the bottom, he's not heavy. He's my brother. Too often is the case, I'm afraid, when the lost lamb feels more scorn from the 99 than he does someone interested in restoration. That happens once in a while within the brotherhood. You need to extend it. But listen, you're going to have to work together at this business. It's going to require all of you working together. Leadership leads the way. You're going to have to work together at this thing. And if you're going to be successful in helping the lost sheep, wherever they are and whoever they are, you're going to have to give effort. Remember I told you, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Are you the lost sheep this morning? Are you the one that ought to go and help? Are you filling your place in the brotherhood? Are you part of the building effort? Are you fitly joined with that which every joint supplieth? Are you knit together in love? I pray to God that you are. Are you trying to express yourself? Are you trying to, at the expense of, of a larger concept, the body, willing to express your membership identity. Be careful about that, because that could be an expression of your own self. Just be careful about that. Folks, we all at times need to be carried back. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. He's not heavy. He's my brother. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. In the next chapter, it says, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. 
And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. If a man say, I love God and hate his brother, his fellow sheep, he's a liar. He that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? This commandment have we from him, that he who loved God love his brother also. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you that you are the great shepherd of the sheep. You are the door. You are the water of life. You are the bread of life. You are the one who gave yourself for us. As our Sunday school lesson described this morning, you are our king. Oh God, I just pray that you would help this body of believers to draw together and work together and show the kind of love one to another that ought to happen. Father, that love goes both ways. It goes and comes from every person's heart. I pray that you would help each one who's here today. Father, I pray for leadership that you will give them wisdom. I pray for those who may feel like that they're insignificant in the congregation, but they are still able to contribute what they can contribute. Give them the grace to carry out the gift that you've given them to carry out. I pray, dear God, that we may all be ready to face you someday, and you can say, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray, dear God, give us grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.